confirm this. If you could bring up that first slide, please, um, sister. We are continuing on our study of the book of Philippians. And so, just by way of introduction, last week we looked at verses 1 to 18 of the first chapter of Philippians. Um, I also went into the theme of the book of Philippians. um, And the theme is that the church should always be moving forward in unity, not backward, no matter the trials or the persecution. Um, I'm not exactly sure why I left out in unity last week. Suddenly I was thinking of that as I was uh, putting down the theme. But it really is that the church should always be moving forward in unity and not backward no matter what the trials or the persecution are. Uh, The next slide, please. So if you remember... Um, We're talking about the city of Philippi, which is up there at the top left in Macedonia, which Paul first visited um, on his second missionary journey after he received a vision from the Lord, um, calling him basically to to go to that place when his own mind, when his his own heart was to go uh, basically up north through Bithynia. And... uh, So the Lord directs and the Lord knows um, situations and who needs the gospel the most. The book of Philippi was born through through the Apostle Paul and Timothy going uh, and following the the leading of the Lord. Um, There was persecution. Uh, There were people saved. There there was persecution. Uh, They were put in in prison. And out of that, uh, they they were freed and... And uh, the Philippian jailer came to the Lord. And it really is a case in point of trials and tribulations. We don't know why we're going through. We don't know what we're going through. We don't know the reason and the purpose that the Lord has for the things that we go through. We just need to trust in Him. And we need to do what we know to do, as the tongue interpretation said this morning. We need to keep faithful. We need to keep walking with the Lord, even though we don't understand where we're going or, or why we're going through the things that we're going through. He has called us to be faithful and He will bring the victory. He will, um, he will bring us through. All right, next slide, please. So, last week we ended with verses 12 to 18, which goes through the fact that um, the church was moving forward. Even though there were um, trials and persecutions with, with Paul, he was still preaching, even though he was in bonds, and the word was still going forward. Some were doing it because they wanted the work of the Lord to go forward. Others were doing it because they, they just wanted Paul to suffer more. But the Paul was rejoicing because the work was going forward. And that is what mattered most to him. That was the heartbeat of God. That was what he, the fact that people were being saved, the fact that people were coming to the Lord, the fact that the church was moving forward was the most important thing to Paul. And so he rejoiced in that. Next slide, please. And so that brings us to verse 19. 
For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Why would all of this lead to his salvation? Well, and that, that salvation is a, a physical salvation. He was expecting to be set free from his bonds. The reason was because he knew that God still wanted the church to move forward. He knew that God still had a purpose for him. As um, well, we're still following very closely to uh, Brother Brian Kinsey's book, um, a study in, in, in Ephesians, The Bride's Prize. Paul was certainly aware of the miraculous release of Peter from prison in response to earnest prayer. In Acts chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. And it was in Philippi that Paul, along with Silas, had been delivered from jail after praying. In book of Acts chapter 16, verses 25 to 35. To Paul, imprisonment was an inconvenience, not an impossibility. Sometimes we look at our own trials and we, we think there's no way forward and we think that it's impossible to get out of. Well, God never thinks that anything is impossible. Nothing is impossible to him. It was just an inconvenience. He knew from the Lord's teaching from the history of the early church and from his own experience that God could orchestrate his release at any time in response to the fervent prayer of the saints. He knew that the church of Philippi was praying for him. The church of Philippi had gone through pretty much all of the same trials that that Paul had gone through and was still going through, but they stayed faithful and they were praying for Paul just like Paul was praying for them. It is possible that the Spirit had revealed to Paul what would take place, that he was going to be set free in the future. Or it may be that Paul simply had the deeply rooted confidence that comes from walking day by day with the Spirit. When we are filled with the Holy Ghost and rely on His guidance in all things, we have hope and confidence for the future, regardless of our current circumstances. It doesn't matter what we're going through now. When we follow Jesus, when we're in his will, when we're following his plan, we can be bold. We can be confident that he has everything in control. We don't need to be in despair of where we're at, but we can put our faith and our trust in the Lord more, knowing that he is going to be with us. Therefore, we must never be timid about asking others to pray for us. Knowing that others are praying both moves God's heart and increases our own confidence. When we lack that confident hope in the future, we can examine the situation through these two questions. One, do I know that others are praying earnestly for my deliverance? And two, am I walking daily in step with the Holy Spirit? When the answer to both is yes, we will experience confidence in God's deliverance. We know that we're walking in God's ways and we know that others are praying for us. So we know that God's got it in control. We don't have to be afraid we know that we can trust in the Lord. Verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. Paul had a testimony of how Jesus Christ had turned his life completely around. And he was determined that he was always going to keep preaching it so that Jesus would always be magnified through him. The end result of what happened to Paul was not his, his worry. It was the fact that 
he would still magnify Jesus, that he wouldn't be ashamed, that he would continue to preach with boldness. Once again, from the, the Brother Kinsey's book, our testimony of Jesus Christ does not make him bigger than he already is. We as human beings cannot ever hope to magnify the Lord with our own ability and talents. However, we can reveal what Jesus has done in our lives and bring Jesus closer to people who do not know him and have only heard about him through the media and other means. When we suffer for the cause of Christ and experience setbacks, storms and situations, face them with joy and walk through them unscathed with our faith intact, it is a testimony to the unbeliever that Jesus does protect his people and that he is true to his promises. When we develop the mind of Christ, and we'll talk more about that in the next lesson, and think as he thinks, we're able to trust God even with the cross, even when we don't know what our fate will be, knowing that the prophetic word of the resurrection is just as sure as the prophetic word of the crucifixion. He will deliver in one way or another. Our trials possess the magnifying power to bring things that are afar off and make them close enough to touch and see in every detail. And when our motives are pure and Jesus rules in our hearts through peace, we can make even the smallest things look bigger and cause others to see them in their true nature. To some, especially to unbelievers, Jesus is not very big. In fact, to many, he's just a curse word. Um, He's just someone that, a name that, that they say when they're, They've been hurt or, or when, when they're, they're, they're feeling desperation or, or when they're angry. He's either so far away he cannot be reached or so small that their problem is too big for him to handle. And that can happen to people in the church as well. We can think that our problems are too big for Jesus to handle. It's laughable when you think about it. We're talking about the creator of the universe who put everything into place in the first place. Yeah, he can, he can handle our situations and our problems. It's not too difficult for him. But when the Lord delivers his saints from a terrible trial or crisis and unbelievers see them walk with victory, power and deliverance, they begin to witness just how awesome and how great our God really is. You see, some people may not believe in God, but when they see things happen that should not happen, that they see people being delivered that should not be delivered, it is a a testimony. And it is something that makes them think, well, hang on a minute, there might be something in this. Our lives are a lens that makes Jesus appear to be real and life-size, bringing a distant Christ close enough to be intimately involved in their lives as well. Our testimonies are the most powerful tool we have in witnessing in talking to people, because nobody can deny your testimony. Because it happened to you. And they, they, they can't help but wonder if there's something in what we're talking about. Verse 21, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, he's talking about, He's he's talking about physical life and death here. But if I live in the flesh, if I stay alive, this is the fruit of my labor. 
He said, I'm, I'm seeing all these people. I'm seeing the church going forward. I'm seeing the Philippian church moving forward. This is, this is an encouragement. This is something that I take joy in, even though I'm going through trials and tribulations and suffering at this particular point in time. Even though I don't know whether I'm going to live and die on this earth, I can see that the church is moving forward. And he take, took great comfort of this very fact. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I what not. Paul was having an internal debate with himself in this, in this passage. He was, he was saying, it, it, was, it, was, it was definitely rhetorical. It, it, was, it was not something he was actually saying, well, I'm going to choose death. You know, I'm going to choose to die. It was something that was, was out of his hands, but he knew that God was in control. And he was trying to work out, well, he, he was going through the different points about, um, about what could happen to him. And he was taking joy and consolation in whatever happened because he knew that it was going to be a good thing no matter what happened to him. Though his internal debate was certainly rhetorical, Paul used it to further illustrate that great good the great good that could be accomplished by his willingness to embrace his difficult circumstances. Many Christians would prefer the joy and comfort of being in the Lord's presence to a life of continued suffering if that choice was theirs to make. Though he disliked the idea of dying, any rational person would, we nearly always seek to escape difficulty and advance our personal comfort. We may be tempted to compromise our witness by choosing worldly pleasures or protect our material comfort over giving generously to others. We say we favor self over Christ quite often. Yet Paul could honestly say that if truly given the choice, he was unsure whether he would rather enter the presence of Christ or choose to remain in prison if that would mean the salvation of more souls. He was that committed to the idea of serving Jesus by serving others, by helping the work of God to go forward. And that is a mindset that can be very foreign to us in this world we live in today. But it was a mindset that was truly the mind of Christ and where we should be reaching for. Verse 23, For I am in a strait between, uh, between two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. There was a purpose. He knew that God still had a purpose for him to be on this earth. That your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. He knew that even though he was in bonds, even though he didn't know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to die, he knew that it would be such an encouragement to the church when God delivered him and he was able to step into their congregation completely free and that it would be a great rejoicing, it would be a great uplifting to the entire church because God had proved his power once again of deliverance. And that their trials, they knew that God had everything control as well. Remember that the Philippian church was a church that was going through a lot of persecution. They, they, they were going through the same sorts of things that Paul was. But, 
And it just kept going on. And so Paul was trying to encourage them. Paul was saying, you know, God is looking after me. I know that he's going to deliver me. And he was giving them faith in their own situations and their trials that God had everything in control. In these verses, Paul was painting a picture that the end reward for following Jesus is far greater and something incredible to look forward to when compared with living in the present with trials and tribulations. But Paul knew that the church needed to move forward and him still being alive would encourage and uplift the Philippian church and provide opportunities to teach and help them to grow and stand strong no matter what was happening. Even in the face of opposition, trials, tribulations and sufferings that both Paul and the Philippian church had to constantly endure. And that was enough to desire to put his reward on hold on hold, so that he could encourage the Philippian church to move forward so that many more souls would be saved. From Brother Kinsey's book, In each of our lives, God balances revelation with suffering. When God uses us in ministry, we may experience setbacks, pain, and disappointment. And that often causes us to throw our hands in the air and wonder what's going on if God was truly with us. But that is completely the wrong way of looking at things. If God uses us to accomplish something in ministry, that achievement is often offset by suffering, disappointment, hurt, and pain. God balances revelation with suffering. Failure to understand that is the reason many Christians become frustrated with their own lot in life and jealous of the lives of others. They go through a time of trial that others don't experience and they have difficulty entering into the joy of others. Paul's attitude here illustrates an important concept. Our sacrifice for Christ will result in the blessing and progress of others, which is a reason for us to rejoice. Paul wanted the Philippians to be joyful even though he was in difficult circumstances. And we should rejoice when God delivers others even if our deliverance has not yet come. Because God has everything in control. It's really hard in the natural to do. But when we get an understanding of, of how God works and of how God delivers us and of how God takes us through trials and tribulations... That should help to change our thinking. That should help us to realize that we should rejoice when others come through their trials and tribulations, even though we're we're still stuck, because God will bring us through, and then others will be able to rejoice with us as well. He has timing in his control. Even though it seems to us to be too long, he has it all in control. He knows what we can take, and he delivers in his time. Verse 27, next slide, please. Only let your conversation or your way of life, the way that you walk with God, be as it becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, the way that you live, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. We're talking about unity here. We're talking about working together to make sure that the kingdom of God moves forward. With this verse, Paul began a brief series of practical exhortations concerning the Christian life. Paul began with a Greek term literally translated as only, only let your conversation be. 
But the meaning here is more emphatic than the English word implies. It might be better translated as no matter what or above all else. Paul signaled that this instruction was of the highest importance. Despite the warm fellowship between Paul and the Philippians, he was more casual in his greeting to them than, than any other church. Despite the warm fellowship between Paul and the Philippians and his great joy in their relationship, the context of his writing was serious and called for serious attention. He wanted to make this one thing very, very clear to them. That's why he gave it the, this much emphasis. The verb translated by the King James Version as let your conversation bears the meaning to behave as citizens. The Philippians were Roman citizens, but Paul wanted them to know that their true citizenship was in another world, heaven. And later in the book of Philippians, it touches on that point again. We are called by God to behave in such a way as to reflect our loyalty and service to the Lord and to his purpose. That's what a citizen does. They, they have national pride. We should have pride in the kingdom of heaven. This behavior should always be worthy of the gospel. Paul would later write, where to we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And that's later on, we'll touch on that in the book of Philippians, but not this lesson. This echoes the apostles' call throughout his writings for Christians to display character and conduct in keeping with their new identity in Christ. We should live like he has freed us. We should live like he has, has delivered us from sin and bondage and everything else that used to hold us bound. That's the way we should be living. And references for that is Romans chapter 6, verses 11 to 12, and Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 16. This call to right behavior was a, to apply in, to them in Paul's absence as well as in his presence. It shouldn't matter whether Paul was there or not as to how they walked with God and how they behaved. He did not want them to conform to a new standard of living only when he was with them or receive some good report about them. Paul wished for their character and conduct to be right at all times. And the same goes for us. Our behavior as citizens is to be worthy of the gospel with or without the presence of other Christians around. If we honor Christ only when others are watching, our behavior is likely forced and does not come from a changed heart. Paul here warns against environmental faith and obedience that is dependent on the environment. Our environment should not dictate to us how we follow God or how we walk with Him or the choices that we make. But we need to make the right choices. We need to follow Him no matter who is watching. We know that He always is watching us. Paul here warns against environmental faith and obedience that is dependent upon the environment. Signs of environmental faith are praying in public, but not in private. Studying scripture at church, but never alone. Or allowing private sins that are indulged in secret, but avoided in the company of others. As children of God, we should be walking with God. We should be walking in His ways. We shouldn't allow ourselves to do things that we know are wrong. 
because we want to follow Jesus. We want to please him. It's, it's all about him, and it's not about us. And it's not about who we think is watching either. <laughs> Verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, or I guess being completely lost, but to you of salvation and that of God. Behaving as citizens involves standing fast against the people and circumstances that come against us. For we know that the world watches the church's every move. If people know you're a Christian, they're going to be watching. They're going to be looking for chinks in your armor. They're going to be looking for ways which are, that, that you behave that are incompatible with well, what they think um, Christians should do anyway. Sometimes that's warped, but they're going to be watching. They're going to be looking. They're going to be seeing, is this real or is it not? Every saint is a living epistle known and read by everyone. When read every day, this epistle, us, gives the Lord an opportunity to reveal himself to others that we trust and believe that he can and will supply all of our needs. There will always be those who disbelieve the gospel and fight against it. Always has been, always will be. At times, that opposition breaks into outright persecution. It's not something we like to talk about or even think about. Breaks into outright persecution as we now see in some parts of the world. And the way the world is going will come into Australia as well. The laws that are being put into place, the restrictions that are trying to be put on on the church and our freedom to speak the word of God as it, it is intended, that, that it's coming against the church more and more and more. Short of the loss of life or property, Christians may face ridicule or discrimination because of their faith. When that happens, we must never lose heart. God has allowed the adversary to resist us in order to prove and refine our faith. And that's exactly what it comes down to. God allows things to come to us to help us to grow in Him, to help us to be stronger, to help us to be able to handle the next trial better because we're, we're trusting in Him more and more and more and He's able to, to, uh, to, uh, um, to bring us through more and more because we will put our faith and trust in Him no matter what we, uh, stands against us. Even this works out for our salvation when we rejoice in the truth and stand firm. As we do that, the justness of our cause becomes apparent to others. Sometimes it's going to be other people that are part of our deliverance who don't even believe in God. And God has all power. He, He can and He does do that. If we suffer because of our own wrongdoing, no one will care. However, when we face opposition for the name of Christ, the world must take notice. This is the reason we must live up to our citizenship and stand unafraid in the world. While we don't seek conflict, we're able to find joy in the battle. And if we haven't been able to do that, then maybe we should rethink how we're approaching our lives and our situations. It's so easy to get into a mindset of woe is me and, 
and why is this happening to me and and getting into despair without really realizing that God is in control without giving him that that um, that control over our lives we want to be able to deliver ourselves from our own situations but God leads us into situations where only he can deliver and we need to put our faith and our trust in him we find joy in the battle when we accept the fact that we will face opposition it is far less frightening when it comes and we are able to find joy in spite of it we should remember each morning that the devil is real and has the intention of destroying our faith it's not so we'd be scared but so we'd be prepared for whatever the day might bring. When we expect attacks of the enemy, we are prepared for them when they come. And we don't throw our hands up in despair, but we put our, turn our eyes and we put our faith towards him, saying, okay, God, I know you've got this. I know you've got this. I'm not sure what's going on, but Lord, you are in control. It is noteworthy that among the armor of God listed in Ephesians chapter 6, there is no mention of a sheath. That is because the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is to remain drawn at every moment of the Christian life. We should be prepared. We should know the Word of God. We should know that God is on our side and working for us. Relying on God's Word and empowered by His Holy Spirit, we will have the ability the strength to stand firm against all opposition. Verse 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Well, there's that word again, suffering. It's not something we like talking about. It's not something that we like thinking about. But the life of a Christian is never meant to be a bed of roses. It, it never will be, never has been. And I mean, the, the, the real fact is the, the life of a person in the world is much less of a bed of roses than being a Christian is. They go through all sorts of trials and tribulations as well, but they don't have a hope. They don't have some, a deliverer. And we have a Jesus who will deliver us from our situations. Paul declared to the believers in Philippi that they would suffer for his sake. But when they did... It was a privilege. It's all about our mindset. It's all about how we see trials and tribulations. We can, we can offer, often have the opposite effect. We can start to blame God for what we're going through when He is the one who is able to deliver us. He is the one that is trying to bring us closer to Him and strengthen us and make us more assured in Him to be stronger and to be able to make it to the end of the road. Suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ in the earth is a privilege, as Paul proved by his own experience and life. The fact that we are saved by the power and the name of Jesus is a wonderful blessing. And to suffer on behalf of that name becomes a magnificent opportunity to let our light shine in the darkness. Paul echoed the teaching found in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, and that will be on the next slide. Yet, if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Not be in despair, not blame God, but glorify God because he has it all in control. 
And the experience of Peter and John recorded in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council in shame, hanging their heads. No, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Suffering on behalf of Christ was not an unusual experience in the first century. Many were persecuted. Many were put in prison. Many were even killed because of their faith. In fact, Paul advised young Timothy, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. And we can often think that we suffer persecution, but it really is very minor compared to what the early church went through. And even then we can, start, we can throw our hands up in the air. We have a good church. Let's put our faith and trust in the Lord, no matter what we go through. In the Western world, where Christianity has been predominant for centuries, we're not used to this thought. Our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world are today experiencing the reality of Paul's instruction. There are some churches, there are some countries that are actively persecuting the church of God. In any place where the gospel is preached authentically and with power, it will produce conflict. This was true in the Roman world and it is true today. One reason we see less opposition to the gospel in some places is because the gospel is not brought in opposition to the world and its systems of power. In the Roman Empire, the gospel was a threat to the prevailing religious system, as we see in the next slide. In John chapter 11, verse 48, which says, if we let him thus alone, and it's talking about Jesus, um, all men will come, will believe in him. The Pharisees talking about Jesus. And the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. They wanted to keep their, their place. They, they, it was coming against um, the religious system of the time. Economic interests in Acts chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. It, it's talking about um, them turning away people, um, that there was no gods, because they got a lot of wealth through people worshipping gods, people giving offerings at, at their temples, buying little idols of, of the different gods. There was an economic uh, impact that the gospel was having because when people were saved, they didn't do that anymore. And so they lost um, a lot of their economic um, uh, financial wealth. And also the empire itself. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying that these have turned the world upside down. Sorry, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. They were having an impact on the entire world. They were having an impact on the entire Roman Empire. And so it was, it was seen as a threat to the entire Roman Empire, something that a sedition that was coming up, it was going to, to undermine everything that Rome stood for. Is it possible that if the gospel was preached today with the boldness of the Apostle Paul or of Martin Luther or John Wesley, the church might be seen as a threat to the religious culture, the economic systems and, and political establishment and thereby encountering greater opposition? When Christians stand firm for the truth, they will face opposition. Rather than seeing this as unusual or disheartening, it should be taken as a sign that the church is doing something right. Nobody blindly runs into a fight, and no true believer should deliberately engage the enemy. 
We don't go out there looking for persecution, wanting to be persecuted, or, or wanting to, to get, get um, uh, people off our side. That's not the way to preach the gospel. But when we preach the gospel in truth and in power, then people will naturally get put offside. We're not going to see the persecution. That's just stupid. We don't go hunting adversaries. They will come seeking us if we are declaring the truth with power. Yet we do not shy away from the conflict. Lord, help us not to shy away from the conflict. If we are found worthy of upholding the name of Jesus in the face of opposition or even persecution, we should take heart that we've been appointed to a special service for the Lord. And that doesn't mean that we don't preach with wisdom. We, in this world, we need to preach with wisdom. We need to show God and his power with wisdom. Without wisdom, we bring stuff on ourselves that we didn't need to go through. But there will be a place where we can be bold in him by his spirit. Verse 30. So next slide, please. Having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. This Philippian church were no strangers to what Paul was going through. Paul later spoke of the fellowship of suffering in Philippians verse three, chapter 3 and verse 10. We learn something in suffering that we don't learn in any other way. If we only ever have the blessings and the goodness of God, then we're not complete Christians. We become spoiled brats. <laughs> we, we come to expect that God will do things for us. And it's so easy to, to get into that mindset where God blesses us so many times that we expect him to bless us all of the time. But God has made a way for such a thing as life. <laughs> life can happen. You don't always catch the train you want. You, you don't always um, um, make things... Uh, uh, you, you, um, trains don't always and buses don't always match up. And sometimes they do and you thank God for it, but then it comes that, that they don't and then what happens? It's like, do, do we start to question God? I've had to, I had to catch myself and say, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, that's not right. It, the fact that God doesn't actively bless us doesn't mean that he has rejected us or that he's working against us. Whereas if our mind is warped and we, we've got that, that, you know, I'm special because God is with me mentality, then we get, we, we come to the wrong conclusions and, and we start to get away from God. Okay, we learn some, something in suffering that we don't learn in any other way. Pain teaches lessons that nothing else can. For some reason, many new believers have the idea that to trust in Christ means the end of their battles. In reality, it is just the beginning of the battle. But it is also the beginning of great victory. And I know the Lord has confirmed the word this morning through the tongues and interpretations. Before coming to Christ, we faced many conflicts, personal, interpersonal, spiritual, and emotional, but without victory. We just went through them without God. Now that we're in the kingdom of God, we understand that the battles may remain and sometimes are different, but victory will come. 
He will see us through. He will give victory. He will bring victory into our situations and our circumstances because He has all power. Let's never limit Him in our situations or in our circumstances. And we have the privilege and opportunity of sharing in the fellowship and defending of the gospel together. When we see others experience the same conflict we have gone through, we can encourage them and assure them they're going to be all right because we've experienced the deliverance of God ourselves. When we go through a trial, we can encourage others, say, hey, I went through that too, but God delivered me. He brought me through. It was miraculous. It was powerful. And so we can lift up others to go through their trials and their circumstances together. In unity, together. As we go through difficulties together, we learn together. We're able to lift each other up. We're able to walk stronger together. Together we have a greater ability to stand firm in truth and not waver according to the philosophy or the thinking or the way that those would be around us. The Greek word agon, here translated conflict, forms the basis of our word agony. Generally, it can mean any struggle or conflict, but it can refer also refer specifically to fighting for a prize, especially in the Olympic Games that Paul referred to elsewhere in his writings. When Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. In Luke 22 and 44, Jesus was fighting for a prize. And from his conflict in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was evident he knew the price he would have to pay. So when we feel as if we are in agony, we too are fighting for a prize. And we are part of that same fellowship that Paul and the Philippians enjoyed. We enter into the same kind of a relationship, the same kind of an experience, the same kind of of a, a fellowship of sufferings that they did. What is your response to agony? Jesus pressed through it to do the will of the Father. What do we do? Do we give up or do we push on? Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Our earnest prayer during our trials and prayer for one another enables us to stand firm and persevere through conflict, as Paul advised the Philippians to do. Next slide, please. Philippians uh, chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, and the bowels back then were considered to be the seed of emotion. If, if, being, if, if, if you're feeling for, for one another, if, if there's going to be a consolation, if there's going to be a comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, if we're going to encourage one another, if we're going to, to be together, lifting each other up to follow God, fulfill you, my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, Once again, the call to unity. Persecution needs unity. We need to be unified. We need to be of one mind. We need to work together no matter what we're going through. This is the heartbeat of the church moving forward. Being of one accord or unity 
Unity is not agreeing on every little thing. Think about it. It's not agreeing on every little thing. Being of one mind and one accord doesn't mean that we all agree on absolutely everything and that, every, that there's not going to be any disagreements or different thoughts. But it is putting aside our own petty differences for the forward movement of the church. You may not agree with the way that the church is moving forward. You may, you may think it should be going in a different direction, but that doesn't mean that you get to work against the church. No, you submit. You, you, you say, God, I want the church to move forward. If this is the direction we're moving, then I submit myself to it. I'm going to help. I'm going to uplift. I'm going to move forward in the same direction in unity because this is the way that the church is going to move forward. This is where the power of God will be with us. The church should have one mind or have the same purpose. When Christians are aligned with the mission of Christ, they enjoy great unity and power. They go together. Without unity, there is no power. The church will be powerless. The, the Spirit of God won't be able to move. It's actually restricted when there isn't unity. God wants to move. God wants to work. God wants to show His power. God wants there to be healings and, and, and His, His powerful presence in the services. And, and people being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. But when we don't have unity, when we're actively fighting against what the way the church is moving forward, when we're undermining the pastor, when we're working against what the church is trying to do, then the power of God is restricted from working in and among us and with us and through us. Think how many church conflicts result from one group or another injecting a personal mission into the business of the church. The church isn't about personal missions. It isn't about what we want to do. It isn't about what we think will help, but it's about working together so that the church can move forward. When everyone is intent on keeping the main thing, which is proclaiming Christ, the main thing, which is the primary activity of the church, there will be few serious disagreements. If we all want the church to move forward, if we all want the, there to be people to be saved, then we're all going to be the same mind and the same purpose. Tremendous unity occurred in the wake of Pentecost. When the church was first started, this unity was based on the same factors that are, are listed here. Next slide, please. And they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. This is what happened when the church was first formed. And in fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in prayers, and fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together, and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men, as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. This unity was based on the same factors listed here. Having a common mindset in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 43. In sacrificial love, verses 44 to 45. Existing in harmony, verse 46 and the mission of proclaiming Christ, 
in 47. There's, Paul was basically saying, continue on as the church started. Don't lose sight. Don't get distracted. Do what God wants to do in the church. The, the mission of the church hasn't changed. The way he wants us to follow him hasn't changed. Continue in the same way. Verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or arguments or fighting or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. The word strife here is probably a reference to the factions or quarrels that seem to have appeared in the Philippian church, which is mentioned in in chapter 4 and verse 2. Another lesson. Strife is the inevitable result of injecting personal motives into the work of the church. When Christians confuse their personal preferences or desires with the core mission of the church, there's going to be quarrels. There's going to be fighting because there's going to be that resistance. There's going to be that difference in, in, in movement forward. Each person must examine his or her own motives to ensure that nothing is done based on personal desires, tastes, or worst of all, selfish ambition. To be like-minded is to put personal agendas aside and say, I'm going to work to make the church go forward. I'm going to work so that God can do what he wants to do in the church. The second negative behavior to avoid was doing things of vainglory, meaning empty or worthless glory. This may be better understood as a desire for praise. This is the end game for those who pursue personal agendas in the church, to exalt themselves in ways that are ultimately empty and destructive. How many quarrels in the church result from one person or another insisting on having their own way in an attempt to gain credit, receive praise, or be perceived as smarter or more spiritual than others, or to attain a position of respect. Conceit or pride is a cancer that eats away at unity. We cannot afford to be proud. We cannot afford to have our own agendas. We want the church to move forward. We want to be with the vision of go that we have this year. And then it talked about humility. It is vital to have a proper understanding of humility. A truly humble person is not someone who thinks very little of themselves. To be humble is to have a right or accurate view of yourself. To be proud is to lift yourself up. To be humble is to have the right attitude. A truly humble person knows themselves and accepts themselves. Paul further defined this for the Philippians as thinking of others as better than themselves. This does not mean to purposely adopt an inferiority complex, to say, oh, everyone's better than me, I can't do anything. That's not what it's talking about. Believing that I'm no good or that everybody else is more spiritual or more worthy than I am. Paul gave a more exact description of this virtue in Romans chapter 12 and verse 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly or level-headedly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So it's not putting ourselves down, 
but it's it's seeing ourselves as God sees us. It's seeing ourselves as on a level-headed basis. The humble person yields themselves to Christ to be a servant, to use what he is and has, or to what they, they are and what they have for the glory of God and the good of others. We want God to use us. We want God to be able to use us. He can't use us if we're proud, and he can't use us if we're putting ourselves down either. Because if we truly think we're not worthy, then how can we lift someone else up? We need to realize that God has made us worthy. We need to realize that he is the one that is working in us to, to do his will and, and, and to, to bring about his power. Serving others is the key idea in this chapter. To have a humble spirit is to turn one's eyes away from oneself and focus on the needs of others. Humility. Pride is, is always looking at me, wanting to lift myself up. Woe is me. And, but humility is looking out, is looking to lift others up. It's very hard to uh, look at others when you're proud and to, to lift others up when you're proud. Because often it gets done in the wrong way, even if you try. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4. So, yep, thank you. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Paul extended the thought yet again, adding a bit more color to his definition of humility. In simplest terms, he urged the Philippians to look out for one another. Our natural tendency is to put ourselves first. Rather than doing that, Paul urged, look first to the needs of others. When we have a single mind motivated by love for others and intent on serving Christ, we will think more about, <clears throat> more about others' needs than our own concerns. Our priorities will be Christ first, others second, and ourselves last. This thought is clearly expressed by Paul in other writings. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good edification. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Romans chapter 15 verses 1 to 3. The Roman passage makes clear that this is not a weakness. Looking to others first can only be done from a position of strength. Because we are secure in our relationship with Christ and comfortable with who we are or thinking soberly about ourselves, we can afford to set our own wants and needs aside and do what benefits others. This is precisely the mind of Christ, how he wants us to think and be like him. In a practical sense, those who always put themselves first and place their own needs before everyone else's needs will not have joy. If we cannot come to the place where other people are important to us, we will never experience the blessing of God. The thought of placing others first goes against the grain of our narcissistic culture or a culture that's always about me, me, me. We have learned to interpret everything by how we feel, what we want, and what we think we need. That is a pathway to misery. The road to joy leads through giving to others. If you would stand, please. 
If I could get someone to the piano, please. I wonder if anything we've talked about this morning has touched your heart. I know it's challenged me. I want to be a better Christian. I want to be more like him. I want to have him say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to be a better encourager. I want to make sure that I don't ever undermine the work of God and it moving forward. If you have found that you've been a bit of a spoiled Christian, or if every time you come against the smallest circumstance or the smallest trial, you throw your hands in the air and and even start to blame God, then now is the time to change that way of thinking, how, how we've been thinking. We should be able to put our faith and trust in God no matter what happens to us. Lord, help us to change our way of thinking in this in this in this world today we we are taught we are encouraged to look to ourselves to 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 live in pleasure to to do what we want to make sure that we're happy but our true happiness is only found when we follow Jesus we uplift others when we give of ourselves to help others when we see the work of God move forward if we found that we haven't been moving with the work of God the work of, and the vision, now is the time to realign ourselves, to say, God, I want the church to move forward. I want to see the power of God. I want to see more people saved. I want to be in the right place with you. We want the church to move forward together. We don't want people to be on the fringes or on the outside, just looking in. We want everybody to be part of what God wants to do in this place. And God does want to do something powerful with this church. God does want to bring in souls like we've never seen before, but we need to do it together. We can't afford to be working against undermining. We can't afford to be doing our own thing, but we need to work together. So I invite you to come. If you want to get closer to Jesus, if you want to be a part of what he's going to do, then come speak to the Lord. Renew your commitment. Make sure that you are moving forward with the church and moving forward as He wants you to do. The trials and the tribulations are there so that you get closer to Him. If you're going through trials and tribulations, why don't you come as well? Why don't you say, God, I'm going to look to you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to allow you to take me out. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to resist you. But I'm going to allow you to do what you want to do. So I invite you to come, pray, come. Make things right if you need to, but come and and consecrate your lives to Jesus again.